millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's The Wonky Show. We talk consumer guidance, the student experience, China, and roads must fall. It's all coming up. Yeah, there's a, there's a real and present danger here for uh, higher education institutions that are seen to be on the wrong side of the culture wars, the wrong side of the Brexit argument, uh, the wrong side of the immigration uh, argument. And we need to double down on our efforts uh, to um, present not just a coherent argument, but a coherent argument to the right uh, sorts of uh, people, people in influence that need to be... Um, uh Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into this week's higher education, news, policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Editor-in-Chief Mark Leach, recording from home in London. And joining me, we have three brilliant guests. In Bushy Park, we have Sean Waring, Deputy VC of uh, University of Northampton. Sean, give us a reason to be cheerful. Hi, Mark. Uh, reason to be cheerful. Nearly the weekend. Um, kids are coming around tonight. I'm, I'm, yeah, my kids live with me half the week, so tonight I see them. Lovely. And in Clapham, we have Aaron Porter, Governor of two universities and an HE consultant. Aaron. Yeah, hello, everyone. Um, uh, I've been really enjoying the vintage sport that's been played on television on, in, in lockdown. So uh, it's been a great trip down memory lane. There's some more to come this weekend. And somewhere on the M4 HE corridor, it's Wonky's associate editor and spurious correlation cop David Kernhan or DK to you and me. DK, your reason to be cheerful this week. Well, this week was my first wedding anniversary so oh, that congratulations was thank you right the office of students has issued guidance for ensuring consumer rights urging universities to make their information clear and timely this year dk talk us through this please well we've been expecting consumer rights guidance from the ofs for quite a while it's been lingering on their big list of things they're about to publish that haven't we were kind of expecting something more general but we got a specific look at the way consumer rights applies to the situation during and beyond the pandemic now most of the contents are not not going to be a surprise to people who are up in this area. Uh, students have had consumer rights uh, regarding their interactions with universities for a number of years now, and it doesn't really change anything. That what we were looking for in this report was something about the change in circumstance um, and how universities should be responding to their students and applicants' need for information. Now, unfortunately, what we've got is the same thing as we've got pretty much every other time a member of the OFS has spoken in public, which is universities need to provide certainty to students, provide information that is clear and timely about what being a student in September, October 2021 is actually going to be like for them, what it is that they're actually buying. The report warns that if the students get something different from what they think they are buying, then they do have consumer rights and they could adopt a number of approaches to seeking redress. They could go via an institutional complaint and the OAIHE. Uh, they could um, even um, employ a lawyer and go to court. Um, students, of course, when they accept an offer, they're effectively signing a contract. And if a university isn't keeping up its side of the contract, then there is a legal problem. Um, so that's 
broadly speaking it, uh, the sector response was largely, well, that's lovely. We'd like to have some means by which we can be certain about what's going to happen in September, October. We're still getting the thing that it's all being left to individual universities. Um, a big shift from the mood earlier this year when they appeared to be uh, a certain amount of movement away from the idea of institutional autonomy from our regulator. We've now gone in the other direction, and everything's up to universities. And if they get things wrong, then students will see their day in court. Thanks, CK. Um, Sean, how clear and timely can you be? And, and does this guidance help or hinder? <laughs> well, um, it, it's no doubt it's incredibly tricky, and it's been heads down trying to um, solve the various uh, conundrums it's presented us with. Um, we do want to be clear to students for all sorts of reasons. One is um, it's obviously really important that we enrol students financially. Um, we want we want students to be clear about their futures. We want them to make good choices. Um, and we have to play it with a straight back. We can't oversell or undersell because if we oversell, I think students will turn up in September and very rapidly tell us they're not getting what we promised and leave again. Um, so we are we're trying to walk a, a tightrope on this. In terms of how much um, help the guidance has been, I think um, the sector has found that most of the guidance has come out at a national level um, has been too little too late. And we've already had to make our decisions. We've had to do our planning and make our decisions ahead of the guidance. So the most we ever hope for when we look at the guidance is that it, it backs up decisions we've already made. And I mean, Aaron, looking at looking at the offers coming out of universities this year, I mean, would you, I mean, how sanguine would you be about what your experience might look like in this context? I, th I think it's difficult for, for, for students in truth to know exactly what they're going to be getting and indeed how different it would be from what they were otherwise going to um, expect. Um, in some ways, the, the, the guidance is, is helpful because specifically it sets out that the institution needs to be clear about what the student should be expecting, but also how that might change in the event of a contingency. Uh, and I think in a way that's helpful for institutions because I think it gives them the backing to say almost this is what our plan A is but actually if things go wrong or the public health circumstances change this is what plan B or even plan C might look like. I think that's the only realistic way that this can be uh, dealt with. Um, it, it does provide a tricky uh, situation for universities because they may have to articulate more than one um, potential offer but I think that's the only way that we can square this circle. Hmm. I mean, DK, you mentioned the, the redress. This seems to be one of the, the trickiest elements here. I mean, as Jim on the, on the site pointed out, you know, you, it, it sends you slightly round in circles, doesn't it? Because you, you say, you know, if you've got a problem, please take your complaint to the Office for the Independent Adjudicator. And this week, the Independent Adjudicator said uh, they're not. That's, that'd be a question of academic judgment. They're not going to be able to make rulings about uh, about about the quality of courses this year in the, in all this crisis stuff. Uh, and most students can't afford to to take their university to court. And 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 who has the time? So, do we need do we need some other do we need some other avenue? Well, it does to me speak to a deficiency in the current arrangements in England for uh, quality assurance in universities. I mean, uh, we kind of covered this a little bit on the podcast last week, but um, there is a problem wherein we don't really have any direct levers to understand what is actually going on in university and what that quality of experience looks like. Students have got the ability to complain to people, um, and we get a lot of output measures, some of which quite kind of some considerable time after the students in question have left university. We don't really have a way to know what's going on on campus on a given in a given year or um, a given number of years. I suppose if there's one um, big uh, glaring omission from, from this guidance, it's a lack of reference to uh, learning outcomes. Because 
to me, in a way, that, that, is the, that has to be the central driving force for the arrangements that institutions need to make. And actually, it's the protection of learning outcomes. And if they are impeded or undermined in any way, that's the uh, basis upon which students might have, might, should have a, a right to some kind of recourse or redress. So I'm thinking here of uh, Jim Dickinson's big uh, uh, concentric circles diagram, which you've probably seen if you've seen him present on pretty much any matter in the last six months. Um, he argued that the academic experience is at the core of what students are buying into when they come to university. But you've also got the wider experience of being a part of a learning community of the social aspect of university as well. And students are, in many ways, they're buying all that. If you look at a um, a prospectus or an offer. It's not just an offer that we will give you uh, access to teaching that supports these learning outcomes that will uh, get you the skills you need. They talk uh, more widely about the experience of the campus, the experience of meeting other students mm. from different parts of the world. They talk about the um, experience even of uh, kind of being away from home for the first time, taking the first steps into, for many students, the first steps into an adult heard of managing their own affairs, managing their own finances. Um, a lot of that is gone. And they're, they're not learning outcomes. They're social outcomes. And whereas learning outcomes are quite easy to map to online or uh, partially online uh, uh, provision, the social outcomes as students' unions have, are starting to grapple with are very, very difficult to move online. Yeah, so um, I completely agree with that point. And we've, we've been putting um, learning outcomes, program learning outcomes at, at the heart of our planning because um, obviously many of our students are getting um, professional um, professional body accredited awards. Um, they're going to go out immediately and work in services where we um, we have nurses, midwives, paramedics, among obviously lots of other disciplines. But um, we need these students to go out qualified and accredited and able to work. And I think one of the really interesting things about this debate is it's um, kind of shone a spotlight on the difference between the award that allows people to go out into their working lives and their careers and um, that wraparound experience, which is um, really important from um, enjoyment, engagement, mental health, um, and also networking and other things that we learn. Um, but the university is not directly responsible for all of that. And I think some of the questions about what happens in September are questions about wider society. And um, I want, you know, I, I think if we dif differentiate between what universities are definitely responsible for, which I think is that um, trajectory to achieve learning outcomes, to gain awards um, and move into a different um, stage in your professional and working life. Um, and then the, the other things are, are things we certainly have a duty of care for, but so does the rest of society. Um, and perhaps making that distinction makes it easier to talk about um, the promise and what the autumn's going to be like, because the autumn's going to be different for everybody. Um, there's going to be less travelling for all of us. There's going to be less socialising for all of us, whether we're um, on a university campus or not. Um, so I think universities holding the entire responsibility um, for, for things which are actually a much um, wider picture uh, is... Um, perhaps a level of complication beyond the thing we need to really focus on here, which is um, students having an opportunity to, to move on with their lives. Right. Let's see who's been blogging for us this week. My name's Erin Attridge, and I'm a current Widening Participation Project Coordinator and a recent graduate of Education Studies. I wrote a piece for Wonky questioning the outward-facing statements of anti-racism made by universities who can be seen internally as saving black staff and students. These statements have been written most likely by comms teams in response to the recent protests sparked by the unjust killing of George Floyd and others at the hands of the police. These statements are uncomfortable to read considering issues such as 
the existing attainment gap, for which the gap is biggest between white students and black students, the lack of funded black Caribbean PhD students nationally, as highlighted by the Leading Roots Broken Pipeline report, and the more specific instances of racism that take place within individual institutions, which I discuss in the piece. I argue that perhaps these statements would be better off being communicated by equality, diversity and inclusion teams and others who work internally to support staff and students. It's clear that an immense amount of work needs to be done by universities for them to live up to these statements. And now more than ever, there's a need for institutions to be honest and open about where improvement is needed. Hi, this is Paul Gratrick, uh, employability business partner at the University of Liverpool. Uh, recently, I wrote a piece for uh, the site on rethinking value for money in socially distanced times. Uh, this was based on some research I uh, conducted into value for money at uh, higher education institutions. Um, that obviously was done at a time when you know, students were in, in an ordinary circumstance. Um, but the main kind of findings of that research were that from a value for money perspective, uh, getting what you expect is important, as are tuition fees and the teaching and learning content. So it's looking at those three things and how they may be impacted, obviously, by the current situation that we're in. So this week, Happy and Advance HE have released this year's Student Academic Experience Survey, the influential annual report that's given us the first little snapshot of uh, how students are feeling and uh, what they're up to uh, in the post-COVID-19 world. Um, Aaron, what stood out for you? Well, this is a, a really sort of an annual uh, date in the diary for um, the higher education community being able to track year on year what students think about their academic experience. Um, <clears throat> there's a few things that, that jumped out uh, for me. Um, <clears throat> and the most interesting, uh, and I, I hate to say it, but it, it's that COVID link uh, once again, because of course, the field work for this uh, survey was taken um, uh, both before campuses went into lockdown and a little bit um, afterwards. And this might be the first big chance for the sector to realise what sort of impact it's had on the student experience and, and perhaps um, understandably um, uh, the, the results are such that um, whilst uh, compared to last year uh, there is some uh, improvement in the way in which uh, uh, students are perceiving uh, higher education for those students that completed the survey once institutions had gone into lockdown they, did, they were less relatively less satisfied than those peers that had completed the survey uh, earlier on in the, in the academic year. And I guess, understandably, um, whilst the sector should undoubtedly be congratulated for the uh, swift action it's taken and the the gargantuan effort that it's, it's gone to, it, it is going to have uh, some impact on the, on, the, on the student experience. It's so frustrating, though, Aaron, in that we can nearly see that, but we can't quite see this because of the way that the split has been designed in the post-COVID cohort of people that answered the survey. There are a a load more male students, a load more students from private school, and a load more that accessed HE uh, kind of via clearing. Um, so it's not really comparing like we're like, it's like a glimpse or half a glimpse. And it's, yeah, sorry, it's just really frustrating that we can't quite see it. I agree. It's tantalising. And, and I was going to throw in one other thing, uh, DK, as well, because uh, for those institutions, obviously, that uh, think long and hard about deploying the NSS every single year, I think they also get a sense that students that complete the survey quickly uh, are those that often have the strongest view, uh, often stronger, most strongly positive and sometimes a little negative. Uh, but as you go on into the field work, uh, you get more of the, uh, dare I say, um, less uh, strongly viewed uh, students, students with less strong views. And, and I'm sure that, that 
that's borne out in this in this survey. But there's a second thing that I wanted to, to perhaps draw to our attention, which is that thorny issue of feedback. Uh, we know that in 15 years worth of uh, NSS, it's been the area which has always scored most poorly. I think the stubbornly poor progress which the sector has made uh, as a whole on this issue, despite lots of efforts, uh, really the dial hasn't moved dramatically. Well, in this uh, HEPI HEA, uh, HEPI uh, Advanced HE um, uh, survey, um, uh, we start to see some positive move- movement in relation to feedback and how it's being dealt with. Indeed, students are more likely to cite the quality of feedback as a major reason that their experience was better, 37% this year compared to 29% last year. That's really, in the scheme of things, quite a positive sign for the sector. Yeah, I agree with that, Aaron, actually. I I think that was a a fantastic result. But I I also agree with your earlier point about um, differences in the student body. And I was struck that the survey picked up, um, I think 20% of the students were uh, black, Asian, minority, ethnic. um, And my my current university and my previous one were over 50%. And I think that links to other differences in profile as well, um, such as age profile. Um, And I think that's particularly important because of whether students are living away from home or in their own homes. And you might expect that to to generate huge differences in experience, which I felt was masked a bit by the HEPI survey. So I came away thinking, how much is this telling us really about how students at the University of Northampton think? Um, But we we run surveys internally over the COVID period and looked at how satisfied people were with um, the comms and the learning and teaching. We actually saw um, an increase in engagement in many areas. We saw um, better attendance and better module outcomes uh, for lots of our modules this summer, um, which we were really pleased with. But then um, again, the the area that we're worried about is the relatively small number of students who are struggling to work um, successfully um, from home or, or struggling with their digital skills or struggling with broadband connectivity or, or other equipment. Um, so I'm, I'm very conscious that there's a massive difference in experience, which the, the average belies. Um, and, and that's one of our responsibilities, I think, to really work with those students who are most marginalised or most vulnerable. I would absolutely agree, Sean. And uh, we need to be very careful about the way we use the average um, to signify all students as well. We need to look quite deep into the weightings in the data table. Now, for a number of years, this survey has massively overemphasized uh, um, over the experience of students who went to a private school. Now, in the UK student body as a whole, 7% of students went to a private school. But in this sample, it is nearly 20% of students went to private school. Now, from what we can see from this survey, if you look at the splits between private and state school, they've got a very different conceptualization of what university will actually do for them and what university actually is. Uh, students from private school are much more likely to say that their future success will be determined by their uh family connections, their circles of friends, the friends, the school that they went to and the university that they chose. For students from state schools, they're more likely to cite the, the skills they develop, their choice of course, and even their class of degree, uh, which to me speaks of two very different university experiences. And if we are over, if we are over emphasizing one of them in this survey, then we have a problem with the survey. So please, Nick, please, Rachel, in future, can you weight the sample for private and state schools and make this um, a lot more useful by being actually representative of the wider student body? 
Yeah, I want to echo that because I think it's going to um, connect to um, the item we're going to talk about later around Black Lives Matter. But I think um, one of our problems in society is we have too few people from minority groups, um, Black, Asian, minority ethnic groups and other minority groups in positions of authority and decision making. Education um, is a, a key route to people moving into those positions. And if we're not getting their voices in surveys like this, then we're not able to make our education system better able to um, support um, their, their social mobility into positions where they are making decisions and they are sitting on our um, executive bodies. So I think the, I think it all links up, actually. I think marginalising voices here links to marginalising voices in positions of power, and that links to um, uh, the um, social campaigns we're seeing at the moment around Black Lives Matter. Mm. I, I wonder if, if uh, between expertise we have here, when the next um, real data that, that's going to give us a proper insight into... Um, student life during COVID-19, um, what that will be. Is it, is it NSS later in the summer? Well, I think yeah. that... NSS well, the, is coming out on the 15th of July, I think, isn't it? That's right. But the, but the field work for NSS, though, of course, uh, will largely have taken place in February and, and March. And so I'm not sure what proportion of the sample uh, will have had disruption uh, as part of their experience. I imagine at the moment a lot of people will be thinking very carefully about the ways to actually represent that this year, that there is obviously going to be a difference, but we don't know how much of it is assignable to COVID, how much of it is assignable to you getting towards your final exams at the end of year three, and you might be feeling a little more anxious in other ways. Um I don't know when we are going to get a proper look at the experiences of students under uh, COVID that we can compare to a, um, that we can compare to a usual year. So we can see how that is different. Um, even in stuff that we're going to get ye- years down the line, um, even stuff like the graduate outcomes survey um i've got a lovely blog that we're about to publish on this that is like okay every year of the graduate outcome survey is going to have an asterisk on it because every one of them is going to be exceptional in a different way because either it's the first time you've run the survey or because of covid or because it's the first one post covid so we're really struggling to have data that we can compare against other data that exists out there i think we're going to have to commission or someone's going to have to commission a proper survey of this and it would have to be something that uses maybe even this instrument um that just looks at covid strangely i think this is where module evaluation forms within institutions might come into their own uh, they won't be they won't be perfect but of course um they get a, a bit of a snapshot in real time of a more immediate bit of of the experience now of course these aren't nationally comparable but within an institution comparing how your students in this spring and summer term have compared their experience to last year's spring and summer i think might give some really interesting insights there may be an opportunity to bring some of those uh, pieces of analysis from various institutions together uh, be it through mission groups or, or nationally but that's possibly where i'd start with warnings that international numbers from east asia might seriously drop this year we turn now to look at the uk's relationship with china as, as government and media commentators and politicians start turning against what the times editorial called this week cooking the goose sean what on earth is going on <laughs> thank you um so this is the, uh, the the topic around um, the latest British Council student survey found that 39% of students from mainland China um, are considering cancelling study plans um, and students from Indonesia and Taiwan also considering delaying cancelling overseas study plans. Um, and that suggests that UK universities could fail. 
463 million pound shortfall in the coming academic year. So obviously that's something um, to focus our minds. So I think what's going on behind this is a couple of things. Um, one is um, a, a rhetoric around um, overseas students, international students taking places from home students and um, Wonky themselves has covered data on that, which show that um, that's that that narrative um, isn't borne out by the statistics. Um, that um, total numbers of places have increased, and um, numbers have increased for home students as well. Um, I think there's something about the long-term plans of China and the way that they've systematically moved um, into areas like um, transport, um, buying up heavy metals, obviously working in um, digital and Wi-Fi, and that their global influence is increasing. So I think there's a concern about that long-term strategy and what, what, what that puts um, uh, the, um, the other superpowers, basically. Um, and I think there's a part of it as well about um, over-reliance on single-income streams, but also um, I think. Uh, UK universities have rather treated international students and transnational education as money for old rope. And I don't think we've invested enough in those partnerships. So I think um, we're perhaps on the receiving end now of treating them like consumer relationships rather than building up and investing in much more um, equal and collaborative partnerships. Um, and finally, I think we really need to think about if um, a response that makes us more parochial and smaller is the way we want to go on this. Um, I think we should certainly continue to work with China. Um, we want to be global. We want to have these um, effective relationships in research and education because that's part of our mission as universities. So I think there's a lot of different strands at work here um, and um, different interests. So I think it's a, fa a fascinating question. Obviously, we've got a short-term issue uh, with the, the fall in, potential fall in income, but I think a longer-term issue about the ways we want to work as universities and global partnerships. Hmm. DK, there was a, a rather bonkers report out from Onward, the, the right-wing think tank, this week about this very issue. What, what did that say? So this was a strange little report that looked at the proportion of international students as um, as um, looking at the overall student uh, body and then made the usual right-wing argument of uh, castigating these students that are coming over here and taking our places, um, which is, I think we can do better than this, frankly. And even the math didn't actually work because he's using proportions, this Conservative MP, Neil O'Brien. Uh, he is ignoring the fact that university enrollment has increased substantially over the same period. Uh, so there's probably the same uh, number of students or a similar number of students from the UK attending even the highly selective universities he chose to look at um, than um, others. Indeed, I think there was only one uh, university that he looked at where the headline is actually borne out. On In all the others, we're seeing evidence of expansion in, in numbers or uh, stasis as regards home students. So home students are not being crowded out of highly selective institutions or any institutions. And I suspect these proportions are going to go down in the coming years. Uh, I mean, both because of problems with students traveling to study in the UK and because of um, a demographic increase in the proportion of 18 year olds in uh, the UK that are more likely to want to go to university. So a, a little bit of a strange report, but as uh, Sean suggests, it does play into a narrative, a cultural uh, narrative, where elements of the UK, if they're in trouble, they tend to look around for somebody to blame. 
the the Times editorial was interesting this week because it it, it kind of suggested that universities have become over reliant on China, um, and it, it seemed like that's that's part of a wider push against China coming from from the government, um, possibly possibly a longer term move. Is there a risk that universities are going to get caught in a crossfire here? Yeah, I mean, the evidence points towards this being a coordinated, deliberate and strategic move led probably by government or forces within government. Um, And uh, if you think about the people that are behind some of this uh, thinking, uh, with the Onward report, uh, Neil Neil O'Brien is is a well-connected, actually highly thought of young conservative uh, MP uh, who moves in in particular uh, circles. Uh, Yeah, there's a a real and present danger here for uh, higher education institutions that are seen to be on the wrong side of the culture wars, the wrong side of the Brexit argument, uh, the wrong side of the immigration uh, uh, argument. And we need to double down on our efforts uh, to um, present not just a coherent argument, but a coherent argument to the right uh, sorts of uh, of people, people in influence that need to be um, uh, persuaded, but also the general uh, public. Um, I think the higher education community might have convinced itself it's won the argument that international students are universally welcome in this country. I'm not sure that's always the case, even though the evidence is very clear uh, about the economic benefits that they bring. In a rising tide of nationalism, I don't think we can be complacent about um, what a sticky situation this might leave us in. Mm -hmm. And talking about moving in those networks, we had Rachel Wolfe at our Wonky at Home event just earlier this week, and um, she was co-author of this government's manifesto at last election and and advises government on on a number of things. has worked directly for Boris Johnson in the past. Uh, and, we, and we asked her about um, China and the government's approach to it. And what she had to say was, was deeply fascinating. I'm just going to play the clip. There's unquestionably growing pressure from a very large number of MPs now to um, reset the relationship with China, although I think it is very early to say what that might tangibly look like. But that, that is going to be not only in the UK, but globally, as we look at... Um, you know, what was already a kind of burgeoning trade war situation, um, how other countries react. This is going to be one of the great, This is, you know, the, the US-China shift and, and the China shift is going to be the kind of great story of our time when we look back three centuries from now, and this is one um, one part of that story. So, so it is going to have an effect. So what was fascinating about what Rachel was saying, I think, was, was on the one hand, yes, there is that big strategic push moving against China um, and the China hawks possibly uh, possibly winning out the argument in, inside government. But the, 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 the other thing that struck me was was a note of optimism, which is that um, those those people who are also uh, sceptical of China uh, and its power and do want to push back against it are also parents of children and um, human beings who want people to have good life chances, and and she does. She seems to think it's unlikely that there'll be any direct intervention to stop Chinese uh, students coming to the UK. But there's a lot that it, there's a lot there's a lot that could fall short of that. That could be hugely destabilising. And 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 we've seen in all sorts of different international education markets where you know small little adjustments of policy and uh, changes of rhetoric have have really affected trends of, of recruitment. Yeah, absolutely right, actually. When you, you look at the changes that have been made in um, uh, requirements for visas for international students and how that's um, ratcheted up over the years and that's impacted on um, different universities who are working in different regions or had um, students who had uh, different likelihoods of getting visas, uh, those those changes themselves, which now seem minor in um, comparison to this, um, you know, absolutely uh, astronomical potential change. 
Um, but th- those those had huge impacts on university budgets. And uh, with universities like um, LSE or Imperial or UCL that hugely rely on international student fees, this is a, a massively destabilising um, event for the, the whole sector. Yeah, th- th- there's one other reason I, I'm, I'm sort of um, disappointed by the way in which this argument has, has come about. Um, uh, because in a way, I think it makes it less uh, easy for us to address uh, some genuine questions, which I think the sector does need to face up to. I don't think, uh, I think as DK and Sean has rightly said, the crowding out argument is a false one and the evidence clearly demonstrates that. But within institutions, I think it is reasonable to say there are some departments, there are some programs for whom uh, a dependency on international students, and sometimes that's Chinese students, uh, without those, that program is completely uh, unviable. And I think those are genuine questions which do need to be considered in the round. But if it's done in the backdrop of a kind of a, 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 a more um, uh, ill-considered uh, sweeping generalisation about China and Chinese students in the whole, I actually think it makes address legitimate questions much harder. All Lockdown, we're running Wonky at Home, a series of online events presenting new thinking, perspectives and ideas for the sector as we collectively build our way out of the COVID crisis. Find the latest event and book your tickets now at wonky.com events. And finally, following the removal of Edward Colson's statue in Bristol, we've seen the revival of the Roads Must Fall campaign in Oxford as the Black Lives Matter protests move to a new phase of confronting our history. Aaron, what's going on? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a well-known uh, campaign. Uh, of course, um, uh, the uh, colonialist, uh, born in Britain, but of course uh, went to South Africa, Cecil Rhodes, um, who was a, a, an alumni of uh, Oriel College, um, Oxford, a prominent statue there. Uh, and this, uh, the activity, the wave of action that we've seen um, that started in the US and of course has spread uh, globally um, uh, has reignited um, uh, passions and the debate in, in, in Oxford. Um, I, my, my personal uh, view is that um, it, it does seem uh, completely incompatible that in the 21st century, uh, someone with the views that uh, Rhodes had uh, would be commemorated with a, a statue. Uh, I appreciate that there are some degrees of complexity. Uh, Lord Patton, Chris Patton, the uh, Chancellor of Oxford University, um, pointed out uh, uh, the generous scholarship programme that is uh, in Rhodes's name, which supports students from uh, black backgrounds at his university. Uh, but I would segment the two. Uh, I, I don't see a problem with a scholarship programme that does good for students from black backgrounds. Uh, but that doesn't mean that you still need a, a statue. So my view is, let's have the debate. But uh, personally, I'd like to see, to see the outcome of that de- debate be that the statue should fall. Mm. I mean, Sean, this isn't just an Oxford question, is it either? I mean, L- London Met has removed the, the, the name of CAS from its uh, art school this week. And that's, that's probably going to put pressure on other universities that, uh, that use that name too. And, and universities have long and deep links with all sorts of parts of, or difficult parts of our history. And, you know, I mean, I, I wonder if this is a, a kind of thing that the, the whole sector needs to, to confront. Um, yeah, definitely. I think, um, so with the Edward Colston statue in Bristol, um, it seems to me that place for these statues is museums place for these statues is places where we put a commentary around them that explains um, who these people were, how they were part of society at their time, what happened as a consequence um, to different groups of people, how you know white privilege has emerged from that. And we have to remember it and we have to think about it and we have to um, you know explicitly create a society that, as, as you said, um, 
recognises where wealth comes from and recognises where those structures come from. So absolutely, the place for these statues is not in celebratory um, venues. It's it's not in the middle of squares and it's not um, in places where, you know, you see them when you come out of railway stations. Um, but I, what I think we should be doing with them is preserving them in places where we, we don't forget our history because we, we actually have to engage with it and understand how it can be that, you know, time after time, um, any of us can be on panels that are, that are completely white. And that, that is a consequence of that period of history. Um, and um, universities are, are, I think, just starting to work through the implications for um, curriculum and the, and the way that we engage with our students and staff on that. And we've got a very long way to go. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I completely agree with uh, with with, with Sean. Um, I, I suppose there's a, a, and I think there for, for, for some individuals, um, uh, it's a fairly easy judgment call uh, that, as Sean has rightly said, the statue shouldn't be in a prominent celebratory place. It should be somewhere where there's some context, like a like a museum. Uh, I, I do think it will raise a thornier issue for some individuals for whom uh, it is a, a, a more complex judgment about that individual. And, and obviously, we've seen uh, the University of Liverpool uh, have chosen in quick time to rename Gladstone Hall after um, uh, a Liberal Prime Minister who is widely admired for much of what he did, indeed, a Prime Minister that led the way in terms of the abolition of, of slavery. Um, so I think that's a much harder judgment call. Um, and we've also seen uh, some that would suggest that, that Churchill uh, is, is a figure that we can't uh, celebrate. I mean, I think that takes us into really Really difficult uh, territory. I think um, the overwhelming contribution that Churchill made to public life is an incredibly positive one. But clearly, there are also uh, views that he held um, uh, in relation to, to India and elsewhere, uh, which uh, don't stand the test of time. We're wrong then and wrong, wrong now. And of course, uh, there were things that he did, Aaron, as well. I mean, we need to remember uh, Tony Pandey. We need to remember uh, Athens. We need to remember uh, 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 Bengal as well. Um, there is um, the the statue issue more uh, 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 generally. It speaks to like the uh, the great man of um, history idea. It's kind of like um, a Michael Gove conceptualization of history, where in this is how things happen. These amazing uh, white uh, kind of British uh, men come along and they change things and make things different. That's how history works. It's not how history works. There's nothing yeah. at all to do that, is it? I think DK's point is really strong there because I think we, we spend a lot of time on the symbolism and obviously symbolism matters, but I think it can be a distraction from action. And I'm a bit concerned over you know, the recent weeks with the amount of um, what I would call virtue signalling um, <laughs> where people, universities and other bodies have put out statements. And I think, well, you know, words are cheap, aren't they? <laughs> I, I, I completely, uh, I completely agree with that. And and, and I should say, you know, um, one of the universities I'm on the governing body at, at Goldsmiths um, uh, last year, uh, you know, uh, had had a really difficult. Um, uh, period um, dealing with uh, student uh, protest, a group of students who um, both felt and saw evidence of uh, institutional uh, uh, racism. Uh, it was a, it was targeted at, at Goldsmiths, but let's be frank, I mean, uh, I think every institution uh, stares the, whether it's the BME uh, attainment gap, whether it's the differential in, in employment outcomes. And yes, let's have a discussion and a debate about, about statues, but let's uh, put the real emphasis on addressing those, uh, uh, that, that, that systemic and structural racism that does exist in in society higher education is incredibly uh, well-meaning but it does need to obviously put action in place to really start making a change Music.
So that's about it for this week. Remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via Apple Podcasts or your favorite Android podcast directory. Or find the feed you need on wonky.com slash podcast. And if you fancy appearing as a guest on The Wonky Show, drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we'll be in touch. So thanks to Sean, Aaron, DK and everyone at Team Wonky for making it happen behind the scenes. And until next week, stay wonky. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.